We're in Mark 14. We're going to start with verse 27. However, we're going to get a little bit of a running start. When you're studying God's word verse by verse, chapter by chapter, each study builds upon the next. And so sometimes it's helpful to kind of set the stage as we transition into the section of scripture we're looking at this morning. Verse 26 gives us a bit of a transition. We're told that they sung a hymn. This is the close of Passover. And they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus and the disciples have left now the upper room where they had just concluded celebrating as a family the Passover Seder. They sing the Hallel Psalms. How much of the songs they're singing in the upper room, how much of these songs they're singing as they make their journey out of the upper room through Jerusalem, we're not sure. Not to mention it's difficult to pinpoint exactly where the upper room is. You can visit Jerusalem today. You can be pinpointed and pointed to a upper room that they claim is the upper room, but it's very difficult to say with certainty where the upper room was located. We are given three clues. First, we know it's in the city of Jerusalem. That helps. We also know that the upper room was in a residential part of town, more than likely part of a home. We also know that the upper room was near a water source. Peter and John are told by Jesus to go into the city and look for whom? A man carrying a pitcher of water. Now this, these details, these clues, probably point the upper room location, being somewhere in the southern part of the city near the pool of Siloam. Also note that they went out. This they doesn't include, at this juncture, Judas Iscariot, who's left to betray Jesus. Mark continues that they leave Jerusalem and they head to the Mount of Olives. Now, because we don't know exactly where the upper room is located, it's difficult for us to map out the journey that they take from the upper room to the Mount of Olives, except for one clear detail. In order to get from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives, one would have to cross over the Kidron Valley, which is located in the northeastern corner of the Temple Mount. The Kidron was situated on the eastern side of Jerusalem, and it separated the Temple Mount from the Mount of Olives. From this point of origin, you should note that the Kidron Valley works its way east through the Judean wilderness, ultimately dumping out at the Dead Sea. Over its 20-mile descent, the Kidron drops an astounding 4,000 feet in elevation. Interesting to note, for those of you who study eschatology, that when Jesus returns, the Mount of Olives, we're told, splits in two, and from there, a river of living water gushes forth, works its way down the Kidron, and dumps into the Dead Sea, revitalizing the sea, such, such as there's fish and there's fishermen. Now, just outside of the city walls, you have the Kidron. And just outside of Jerusalem, located within the Kidron, you find something interesting. You can see it today if you visit Jerusalem. But there was a concentration of rock-hewn tombs. This area was known as being one of the main burial grounds of the Jerusalem elite during the Second Temple period. That means very little for us at this point in our study through Mark, but Hold on to that nugget because we're going to come back to that later on when we discuss where Jesus was actually buried. Now the Kidron, situated next to the temple, and the valley itself served a very important function. In the temple construction or reconstruction, however you want to classify it, Herod the Great did something interesting. 
he developed there on this piece of property a very intricate system of drains and canals that served to wash away the blood during sacrificial periods. It was a way of keeping the Temple Mount pristine and clean and pure that the blood would be able to wash away and would ultimately dump out through these canals and drains into the Kidron Valley. The drains funnel the blood into the valley. It would flow south, east, out of the city, staining much of the valley. Ironically, Kidron means literally black for the blood that stained the valley itself. Now, Josephus tells us, and Josephus is a first century Jewish historian, that during this time period, one lamb would be offered for a maximum of 10 people. Josephus also estimates that during Passover, the first century, that on average, 2.7 million Jews were present for this feast. He records specifically that 260,527 lambs were slaughtered on this night. Now this kind of got me thinking. That's a lot of lambs. And that would probably be a lot of blood. So how much blood? Do you realize that the blood volume of a lamb is about 49 milliliters per kilogram of the lamb's weight? Now, I'm not a mathematician in any sense. Thank goodness, praise the Lord for Google. The weight at slaughter, six months of age, was 125 pounds or 57 kilograms. So the blood of a lamb is 59 milliliters per the lamb's weight. The lamb at this juncture weighs about 125 pounds, 57 kilograms. Now on average, each lamb would therefore have 2,793 milliliters of blood, totaling three quarts. The human body has five. Now three quarts, as I'm doing my research, plugging in numbers, by 260,572 lambs totals 781,716 quarts of blood. And as I'm sure you're running the calculations, you know that that's 740 cubic meters. Duh. Now, for every cubic meter, there are 264 gallons, which means that the blood of the sacrifice was 195,360 gallons of blood, but you already know that. Now, if the average swimming pool is 20 feet by 30 feet by 5 feet, and it contains approximately 22,500 gallons, we can estimate that around 8.7 swimming pools of blood plus the water needed to wash the amount of blood away from the Temple Mount into the Kidron Valley, that's a lot of blood. Lots of blood. 8.7 swimming pools plus the water needed to wash it all away. Now, why is that significant? In verse 12, Mark sets the scene for this evening. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, what? What happens? when they killed the Passover lamb. This means, set the scene, 
that as Jesus and the remaining 11 disciples are making their way out of Jerusalem, crossing the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives, think of what the scene would have looked like as the blood rushes out of the temple. Lots of blood rushing out of the temple into the Kidron Valley of which they have to cross. Imagine as they're making their way, it's dark. It's late. It's only lit by moonlight and, and random fires. The shrill cry of innocent lambs, a lot of them being slaughtered. It would have been deafening. As you're passing the East Gate, you would have had sweaty, blood-soaked priests taking their break. The stunning visual of a river of blood flowing through the Kidron Valley would have been stark. The smell, imagine the smell of that much blood and meat. It would have been nauseating. Now, regardless of a person's sensibilities, this scene, every aspect of it was completely and utterly necessary. For what was illustrated by what would be seen? The fact that atoning for the sin of humanity was a messy, bloody, unsettling, even offensive proposition. Then Jesus, he said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Now Jesus has already made it known that one of the 12, we know to be Judas Iscariot, would betray him. Now, Jesus proceeds to let them all know that they're going to experience this night a crisis of faith. Now, admittedly, this phrase, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night is confusing. And I think in some ways misleading because, well, it's poorly translated in the King James and the New King James. The Greek word for will be made to stumble is the word skandalizo, which literally means to cause a person to distrust and desert one whom he ought to trust and obey. It's a turning away. Jesus is telling the remaining 11 disciples as they're making this journey, as they're crossing the Kidron, that the upcoming events of that evening would cause each and every one of their faith in him to wane and waffle. Even... John, who doesn't actually betray Jesus or deny Jesus, who is the only disciple to follow Jesus genuinely, who's there at the cross, even John, according to Jesus, his faith would experience a crisis. The ESV, the NIV, actually translate this verse correctly saying, you will all fall away, for it is written. To validate his statement, Jesus quotes from the prophet Zechariah, making it clear that not only had this been predicted or foretold generations before, but that Jesus had evidence, that Jesus had proof, that Jesus was aware of their coming failure. Jesus knew that his arrest and his trial, his scourging and his execution, his death would rock and rattle their faith. But 
Jesus continues, after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. You know, it's as though, as I read this, Jesus is preemptively encouraging them and the failure he knows is coming before they failed. It's as though Jesus is telling them, I know the storm that's on the horizon. Fellas, I know you're about to face a situation that will cause your faith in me to wane. I already know that in the face of such crisis, you're going to fail and you're going to falter. You're even going to flounder, but this is what I love about Jesus. He encourages them, take heart. It's okay, because in the end, when it's all said and done, I will prove faithful. What happens tonight will cause your faith to go into crisis, but don't worry, I'm going to prove faithful. The phrase, will go before, is the Greek word prego, which means to bring forth to trial. Jesus is literally saying, I will prove to you I am faithful when I have risen and appear in Galilee. Verse 29, so Peter says to him, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. And Jesus says to him, assuredly I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter spoke more vehemently. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so they all begin to say likewise. It's not as though that Jesus has minced words. Jesus has been very direct. He's been very deliberate. You can say that Jesus has been very honest with the disciples what's coming. Not only that he's going to be arrested, illegally tried, executed, and then raised the third day, but that they would all abandon him. Jesus has been very, very clear. But Peter, Peter will hear none of it. Which tells me a couple things about Peter. A few things I see concerning Peter from this text. One, Peter's undeniably sincere. You can't fault him for that. Even when Jesus specifically addresses the environment of Peter's denial, he remains defiant. The phrase that Peter spoke more vehemently it's a preposition. It doesn't actually describe the, way, like the words that Peter used, but the animation behind the words that Peter used. He became more animated, more brazen, more brash. You could have translated this as though Peter gets into Jesus's face when he says, if I have to die with you, I will, den I will not deny you. And you can say that Peter believed this and he was passionate about it. And to his credit, as we'll see next week, when everything went down, who was the one disciple to pull out a sword and say, I'm, I'm putting my actions behind my words. I'm going down with you, Jesus. It was Peter. So he's sincere. He's determined to make good on his promise, to prove his loyalty, to show his devotion, even if it meant death. And we should give him credit for it. However, we should also note that Peter was self-righteous. <laughs> I find a lot of humor in the way that Peter addresses the scene. He says, even if all are made to stumble. It's as though that like in the midst of this conversation, as, as he's stepping out there, and as he's telling Jesus that he's not going to fail, he'll prove dependable, 
He says, Jesus, I understand your reservations about the rest of these guys. I mean, really, look at them. Like, I'm sure that it's uh, reasonable for you to conclude that if things go down, that this group of cowards is going to run. I know. Even if all of them are made to stumble, and I'm sure I'd be worried too. But in the face of their coming stumbling, I'm different than them. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm different. I'm better. I'm more loyal. I'm more devoted. Now, Peter is falling prey to the old trap of adopting a righteous view of his ability. How? By comparing himself with the obvious inability of others. It's as though Peter, he's saying, they won't. They can't, but I will, because I can't. It's moral authority based upon comparison. He's self-righteous, but we also see that he is rebellious. Peter is so sure of himself, so sure of his ability to remain faithful to Jesus. Did you notice what he's doing? He is openly denying the truthfulness of Scripture, and he's challenging the factuality of Jesus's word. He's like, it's like he's saying, I don't believe scripture and I think you're kind of lying to me, Jesus. Jesus justified his initial statement saying these things were going to happen. Why? Because scripture foretold they were going to happen. But Peter's like, no, nah, maybe scripture's talking about them, but not about me. And then when Jesus personalizes it by saying, assuredly, Peter, I'm telling you that today, tonight, before the rooster crows twice. You're going to deny me not one time, not two times, not three times. Well, actually three times. So he's going to deny him. Peter, in this scene, he can't help but note that he reeks of pride. Doesn't he? Do you get that impression? That he's so full of pride, so full of ego, so full of self-confidence, that's defined as confidence in self. In Peter's mind, there was nothing, nothing that could happen that would or could deter him from following Jesus, no matter where that might lead. It's almost as though that Peter's challenging Jesus. I'll prove it to you. Give me an opportunity. I will show you my worthiness and ableness. Now, though his intentions, as mentioned, are sincere, even admirable, Sadly, Peter has become so fixated on defending his ability to be faithful to Jesus that he has forgotten to be submissive. Instead of heeding the exhortation of God's word, Peter is openly rebelling and resisting God's word. Peter, Peter, spend some time as they're making this journey. He's crowing like a rooster full of pride and cockiness. But Jesus tells him that he will soon find himself humbled. Pride indeed precedes a fall. Now over the next few chapters, Jesus is going to be working Peter over in some profound and powerful ways. And as we'll see, and it's important to establish this beforehand, Jesus wants Peter to understand one simple concept, a concept we should understand that no amount of self, 
And no amount of self-ability can help or aid a person in following him. Peter will try sincerely with human vigor, might, sincerity to follow Jesus in strength, the strength of his own ability through the standing of his own self-righteousness motivated by the depths of his love and devotion for Jesus. But over the next few hours, Peter is going to discover that all of the things that he took so much pride in, mainly himself, will prove sorely, tragically inadequate. Peter will discover the hard way that his best is simply not good enough. And Peter will learn that the essentials to following Jesus is not my ability, it's not my devotion, it's not even my love, but the strength, the essential, is the strength found in Jesus' sufficiency demonstrated as we submit to the power of his indwelling spirit. We'll see this in Peter over the couple chapters. Verse 32, so they came to the place which was named Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Now it doesn't take a degree in neuroscience to realize that the Mount of Olives was kind of known for olives. That's what it was known for. It's extensive and expansive olive groves. Even today, you can go visit trees, olive trees there on the Mount of Olives that date back to the time period of Christ. Now at the base of the Mount of Olives was a garden. The garden was known as Gethsemane. John 18 actually indicates that this garden was a favorite spot of Jesus when he would travel to Jerusalem. This was not the first time that Jesus hung out in the garden. Now, Gethsemane can literally be translated Garden of the Olive Press, for it was the place that harvested olives from the trees there on the Mount of Olives would be pressed to produce oil. The, the, the symbolism, the imagery is powerful. You see, once the olives were harvested and cleaned, they would be placed under a large millstone and crushed into a paste. Now, as it's crushed into this paste, it would release most of the vegetative water that would dilute the oil itself. It would shatter the olive seed and it would initiate the maturation of the oil. The this paste under the millstone would remain there for 30 or 40 minutes. Now, after curing, the paste would be placed onto several large fiber discs. The discs would be placed onto a press, and a large stone would be placed on top of all of these discs. Typically, there was a stone about yay high that had a trough around the bottom of it, and as the discs were stacked and the stone, a heavy stone lowered on top, it would push out the oil through the fiber disc, adding a, a certain level of, um, of, of purifying and cleansing and, and, and filtering out any of the impurities. And it would come down, flow down the stone to the trough, would dump out so that they could bottle it. Now, it's interesting that after the initial weight is pl placed onto the press, that the first oil, or what we call the virgin oil, would be released and it was the purest. As a matter of fact, the virgin oil would, would be used for certain types of cooking. It would also be used for anointing the priests, anointing kings. It would be used as the oil to light the menorah there within the temple. It was the choice oil was the first to be released through the crushing process. And as more weight gets added, more oil gets excreted. Each 
being a little diluted and less pure from the first. Now, this is an interesting place, in my opinion, for Jesus to go pray. Jesus knows what's coming. He knows what's on the horizon. He knows what that night holds. He wraps up Passover with a song, and then he's deliberate, isn't he? I mean, he goes to this spot. He could have gone anywhere. Anywhere he wanted to, he could have gone. He could have gone to the temple. He could have gone to another quiet place. He could have gone anywhere, and yet Jesus directly and specifically chooses Gethsemane as the place to go pray, knowing that it would be the place that he would be arrested. And why? Well, I think the imagery of the whole process of the crushing of the olive to produce oil, it was symbolic of the experience that Jesus was about to endure in this garden. For beginning in Gethsemane, the weight of the cross, the weight of the path that was set before him, it now begins to apply a pressure. It begins to add weight. It's crushing this impact upon the person of Jesus. And please note, do you know that the end result of the crushing of Jesus would not be his death? That's not the end result. The end result of the crushing is not even his resurrection, nor his ascension. But the end result of the crushing of Jesus would be even more glorious than those two. It would be the Holy Spirit, the coming of the Spirit to indwell our hearts there on Pentecost. The Spirit being a picture presented in the virgin olive oil. And so Jesus took Peter, took, takes with him James and John, and he began to be troubled deeply distressed. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. Jesus began to be troubled, deeply distressed. This word, to be troubled, in the Greek, it, it means to be thrown into a place of terror. It's a heavy word. It's a radical idea presented of what Jesus now begins to experience. A hor he's horrified. He's struck with absolute terror. And we're told he's deeply distressed. I love this phrase. It, it actually means not what you think it means. It means to feel displaced, to feel far from home, to be unfamiliar. In this moment, Jesus is struck with terror. Why? Because for the first time, he's experiencing something that he's never experienced before, a displacement, an uneasiness. He is now on unfamiliar territory. And the weight and the crushing and the pressing were all essential for oil to be produced. And in this moment, we see an essential aspects of what Jesus is going through, the pressing of himself Jesus tells Peter, and he tells James and John, describing his own internal position, his own testimony. He says that his soul is exceedingly sorrowful, or literally, to become so overcome with sorrow to be at the point of death. Luke tells us that the experience, this crushing in the garden, was so intense that Jesus sweat 
great droplets of blood. It's a very, very rare condition, but a condition nonetheless we know as hematidrosis. It occurs when a person is suffering from extreme levels of stress brought on about by a person's coming death. Now to say that in this moment in the garden that Jesus was in a place of mental and emotional and physical, even spiritual anguish, to say that would be kind of under, understating the affairs of what's occurring. And yet, within this account of what Jesus is experiencing, though it's different, I think, from anything we would ever or could ever experience, we find, I think, some clues in how Jesus handles this moment that provide an application for how we can handle similar moments of crushing and pressing. First, Jesus' experience, it was otherworldly. I mean, think about it. What was it that had the creator of the universe freaked out? Because this is what it's saying, that he's freaked out. Was it the coming physical torture that awaited him? No doubt Jesus had seen a Roman crucifixion. Jesus had experienced pain. It wasn't as though he was oblivious to what stubbing your toe or hitting your thumb with a hammer felt like. He was a carpenter. He, he knew what pain was. Seeing the cross, the excruciating experience, was it that that had Jesus freaked out? I don't think so. You know, there's a difference between the lambs being an unwilling participant and Jesus making the choice to be a willful participant Jesus had chose to be a sacrifice, knowing the pain that would come. I think he was prepared for it. So was it, if it wasn't the physical dynamic, the coming pain, was it maybe a spiritual dynamic? I mean, was there maybe a demonic influence in the garden that had Jesus terrified? Once again, I don't think that that's it, even though Satan is clearly at work. Illustrated by the fact that Jesus has to stop praying three different occasions and go to the disciples and warn them that they need to pray. Why? So they, they don't fall into temptation. Clearly there's a demonic, a satanic element happening here in the garden. But here's the reality, that there is no precedent of demonic power having a negative influence on Jesus anywhere in the gospel record. They cowered in terror of Jesus, not Jesus and the presence of them. See, I am convinced as Warren Wearsby aptly stated, that our Lord's struggle in the garden can be understood only in light of what would happen to him on the cross. That Jesus would be made sin for us and would bear the curse of the law. It was not the physical suffering that almost overwhelmed him, but the contemplation of being forsaken by his father. See, on the cross, the second person of the Trinity, the person of Jesus, would experience the unthinkable. Jesus would experience sin, and he would experience the separation from God that comes with sin. And it's this that has Jesus struck with terror, has him exceedingly sorrowful. But we can also see that Jesus, he demonstrates for us how to appropriately handle a dark place. And that's what I'll just define it, a dark place. You know what I mean by that. 
whether it's a point of depression, a set of circumstances, the anguish of our own soul, the dark place. See, Jesus is in his own dark place. And he demonstrates, I think, two keys for how we can handle our own. Whether it's emotional grief, physical turmoil, spiritual oppression, mental anguish, whether it's pain or depression, doubt, fear, anxiety, stress, or any of the many other effects that come with living in a fallen human experience. Do you know that Jesus has been there? He's experienced the same things that we experience. As a matter of fact, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 tells us that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, meaning he can, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. So when you're in the dark place, what can we see from Jesus about how best for us to deal with those moments? Well, first, this seems simple. I think it's powerful. Jesus, the first key, is in his dark place. He maintained human companionship. Mark tells us that Jesus left an eight-man perimeter, and he takes Peter, James, and John with him deeper into the garden. (laughs) And it would have been easier for Jesus to have gone deeper into the garden alone. And yet, Jesus wanted his friends with him. As he endured this pressing, it would have been easier to have been alone, but he recognized the importance of having people there with him. And trust me, it would have been a better decision to have left them all at the perimeter because Peter, James, and John, they don't contribute anything. As you read through the account, I mean, it's not like they provide some incredible words of encouragement. It's not as though Jesus brings them into the garden, deeper into the garden, because these three guys, they were great counselors. I mean, that they were really full of wisdom, that they were real compassionate men. I mean, James and John, full of compassion, when Jesus is denied entry in a a town of Samaria, their compassionate approach was that they should rain down fire from heaven and kill everyone, the sons of thunder. So why would Jesus take Peter, James, and John into the garden deeper when they're not going to contribute anything? It's because Jesus recognized. He understood the need for human connection while he was in the dark place. And isn't that the opposite reaction we experience? When things are not working very well, when things are difficult, when I feel depressed, you know my natural reaction to the dark place It's not companionship. It's isolation. It's I just don't want to hang out with anyone. Leave me alone. I want to go to my home. I want to sit in front of my couch. I want to be by myself. And yet, that is the worst possible thing a person can do. It is the natural thing, but it's the worst thing that you can do in the dark place. In a 2012 article titled, Connect to Thrive, posted in Psychology Today, Emma Safila, PhD, she wrote this. We all know the basics of health, health 101. Eat your veggies, go to the gym, get proper rest. But how many of us know that social, social connection is as important? Social connection improves health, physical health, psychological well-being. 
One study showed the lack of social connection is a greater detriment to health than obesity, smoking, and high blood pressure. On the flip side, strong social connections leads to a 50% increase in the chance of longevity. Social connection strengthens our immune system. Research by Stephen Cole shows that genes are impacted by social, social connections and that the code for immune function and inflammation are deterred. That you're healthier. That having social connections helps a person recover from disease faster and even lengthen life. She continues, she says, people who feel more connected to others have lower rates of anxiety, lower rates of depression. Moreover, studies show that they have higher self-esteem, are more empathetic to others, are more trusting, cooperative, and as a consequence, others are more open to trusting and cooperating with them. Social connectedness therefore generates a positive feedback loop of social, emotional, and physical well-being. Unfortunately, the opposite is also true for those who lack social connectedness. Low social connection has been generally associated with declines in physical and psychological health as well as, as, well as a greater propensity for antisocial behavior that leads to further isolation. When you're in the dark place and you choose to be isolated, guess what it does? It causes you to desire to be more isolated. And the process of being isolated is detrimental to your ability to gain healing, to, to work your way out of it. You need human connection. You see, you have to defy and resist your natural inclination when you feel depressed to be isolated and force yourself, if it will be, to be around people, to connect with brothers and sisters and family. Because it's in that process, the process of doing what you don't want to do, that you find the strength, the help. Do you know that there's studies that when someone gives another a hug in a moment of despair, that it actually sends signals to your brain that says, it's okay, this person's with me, they're going to help carry the load, that in your brain, giving someone a hug is good for the person who's experiencing doubt and depression and anxiety and stress. And yet it's hard to have human connections when you're in isolation. Is it really a surprise that the first line of attack when we're in the dark place, the first strategy of Satan when a person is experiencing a storm is to get them away from church. It's to isolate them from a connection of believers that want to go through the storm with them. Jesus, he goes into the garden. He's going to experience this pressing does he get anything out of the disciples? No. Would it have been easier without them? Sure. But Jesus is demonstrating the first key to dealing with our dark place, and that is not be isolated, but operate in community. Now, the second key, we find that Jesus was willing to surrender his dark place to his Father. Verse 35 says that Jesus went in a little further. He fell on the ground. He prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he cried, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. First, Jesus, what does he do? He has community with him. He has companionship around. But he comes to his heavenly Father in prayer. 
He doesn't allow himself to be isolated from the ultimate remedy, and that is God. That Jesus, he goes a little further, he falls on the ground, and he prayed. And if Jesus needed to pray, if he found strength in prayer, then so should we. But then know what Jesus does. He honestly, he comes to God in prayer, and then he honestly expresses genuine human emotions to his heavenly Father. Jesus doesn't mince words. He doesn't uh, disguise his feelings. He's honest. He's raw. He prayed if it were possible. The hour might pass from him. And he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away. He's being, he comes to God and he's honest. For better, for worse. He's not trying to have some facade uh, in front of God. He's not trying to be stronger than he actually was. He comes in raw human emotion. The cup. The cup, no, it's more than the cross. It also signified the wrath of God. It signified the separation he would experience from God. It recognized and illustrated the pain. It was a cup of suffering, humiliation, betrayal. It was a cup of sin. And he uses this word, Abba. This is actually an Aramaic word. It was used by children. It was a term of endearment. Literally, it can be translated, Papa, Daddy. Now, please note, that Jesus was not seeking escape, nor a way out of the cross. Rather, Jesus was being honest with his genuine human emotion so that he could effectively yield these feelings and emotions to his Father. The progression. Jesus brings his issue to his Father in prayer. Then he honestly expresses his emotions to his heavenly father, but in the end, we see that Jesus surrendered himself, he surrendered his thoughts, he surrendered his emotions, he surrendered all of these things to his father. He cries out, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. I love this word, nevertheless. I, I kind of exhort you to maybe even adopt it into your own prayer life. Where you come to God, as Jesus illustrated, you fall before him expressing your honest feelings before him, your raw emotions. But then when you're done, that there's a moment where you say nevertheless. You see, nevertheless, it indicates a decision of the will. It's as though Jesus comes to his father and he prays, Lord, hear my thoughts. Here are my natural fears, my anxieties, my inclinations. The cross is coming. Separation from you will occur. But even though I feel the way that I do, that I would desire the cup to possibly pass, nevertheless, I make a choice to surrender my emotions, to surrender my feelings, to surrender this situation, to surrender the dark place to you. And I'll trust that you know what's best for me. Friend, when your mind is filled with negative thoughts, when you're experiencing deep emotions, when you experience the dark place of life, I exhort you to consider what takes priority. 
What has preeminence? What supersedes my fleeting emotions? I would exhort you to make a conscious decision in the place of despair to surrender what you're feeling to the will of God. I feel this way. I'm hurting. Nevertheless, as Jesus prayed, not what I will, but what you will. And so Jesus came. He found them sleeping. And he says to Peter, Simon, what are you doing? That's my translation. Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. For the spirit indeed is willing, the flesh is weak. And again, he went away. He prayed. He spoke the same words. But when he returned, Jesus found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he comes a third time and he says, why are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See that my betrayer is at hand. Now, though it's evident that James and John were also guilty of what I'd like to call a Wilson-like narcolepsy. It's interesting to me that Jesus specifically singles out Peter. Wilson-like narcolepsy, for those of you who don't know and who were a bit distracted by Michelle's outburst. My dear friend Brian is known, Brian Wilson, for his narcolepsy. So it's a Wilson, like, I can't keep my eyes open. They're heavy. James and John are just as guilty. And yet, who's isolated? Who's pinpointed? Who's addressed? It's Peter, right? Now, why is this? Don't forget that how are we getting the account of the story? We're getting the account of the story from Mark, yes, our author, but from whom? From Peter. Mark traveled with Peter and more than likely is recounting stories, writing them down as Peter is recalling them, as he's recollecting the moment. And so what does this tell us? This tells us that Peter is in some ways taking ownership. Now, there's some foresight here. This is further down the road. But as Peter looks back, he could have equally included James and John. They were guilty. But, but how does he address the interaction? It's personalized, isn't it? See, it's not an accident that Peter, as he recounts this story, that Peter falls asleep and is awoke, awoken by Jesus on three separate occasions. And why is this not an accident? Well, it had just been foretold that Peter would deny Jesus how many times? Three, of which he resisted. Interesting, Jesus' interactions with Peter will come in pairs of threes as we look forward. But I think that Peter recognized, in hindsight, obviously, that in his rebuke, Jesus was highlighting what? Peter's inadequacy. He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I mean, really, 
how could Peter think that he would really be able to lay down his life for Jesus when he wasn't even able to stay awake and pray with him? The day is Friday. The time is approximately 2 a.m. In the scene, you hear footsteps. A crowd is approaching a mob. With the betrayer at hand, our narrative is about to take a dramatic shift. But we're going to leave it with a cliffhanger. 